For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're listening to What Do You Know on News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. Arnie Sherman, good morning. Good COVID morning to you too, Scott. That's uh it's a lovely weekend. Um, we're still slogging through, waiting to get vaccinated, waiting to uh, uh, see how everything is going to play out. And in the meantime, as we uh, as we have our foot in 2021, we have a guest today, Mike Braun, who is uh, sort of an eclectic Renaissance man, man of all trades, who's going to help us talk about a lot of the topics that we're that we're all going to be. Uh, dealing with and confronted with, uh, you know, during this coming year. And so I'm looking forward to having him on the show today and just having a good uh, general uh, discussion about where we are and where we're headed. Can't wait, Arnie. Mike's always a great guest. Back after this with Mike Braun. In the studio. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, Arnie. We are back with our guest, Michael Braun. You know, for our listeners who don't know Mike, Mike is one of my personal favorites and one of my personal gurus. And just as a way of background presentation so that as we get into our very diverse topics of conversation today, they understand the perspective that Mike brings to the table today. You know, Mike is a former investment banker and worked on mergers and acquisitions. He has a company called Venture Planet that's importing wine into the United States. He's an advisor and uh, a consultant on a family business, in particular, succession planning. He is one of the most knowledgeable people I know about blockchain and cryptocurrency and what's going on with all of that and what it means and where it's going. You know, he's a professor at the university, you know, teaching strategy and entrepreneurship and international business. He's an author. He has a great textbook called Mastering Strategy that's very popular. He went to Cornell, NYU, USC, UMass Amherst. And he has all of that, and he... When I turn to him for guidance or advice or we have a conversation about a topic, he does it in a way that is completely accessible to, you know, the average person. And it's part of the reason why the students that are lucky enough to have him as their professor love him so much, you know, and why his colleagues respect him and admire him so much because he has this very eclectic background and he can put it all together and make it work in a very uh, interesting and engaging way. So not to oversell Mike, I'm not his PR guy, but he is he is one of the people that I turn to when when the world seems off kilter and I want to you know get a better handle on things. So I thought as we head into night, thank you so much. Yeah. yeah, that's a great intro. Th- thank you, Arnie. You know, and Scott, what it you is. said. Now I have to try to live up to it. <laughs> no, no, you don't have to. You don't have to. You can just be yourself. But but Scott and I talked about this first show of, you know, sort of 2021. And who would we bring in? And, and you know, it, both of us agreed. You know, Mike Braun is the kind of guy that can reflect on lots of different topics that are important to us as we are still mired in the COVID-19 pandemic and waiting to get vaccinated and seeing all the changes that are going on uh, in Montana. Montana and the United States and the rest of the world, and we thought it would be a good time to, to sort of do a, uh, a recapitulation looking forward about what we might have in store in 2021. So that's my, uh, my intro for, for today's show. And the first thing I want to ask you, Mike, is 
How are you and your family doing? Um, you know, your your wife and kids are here in Missoula, but your mother and father and sister live in Europe. How how are they adapting to what's been going on? Thanks, Arnie, and thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me on this initial 2021 show. Um, first of all, I'm I'm going to raise my my glass of water here to bluer skies for this year. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, it's it's been interesting if I reflect back on this year and obviously I think we've we've had some time to reflect uh over the break and and just try to make sense of you know what has happened to us all. Um when I think back to how things started, I had a little bit of a different experience back in February and March because my sister lives in Italy and my parents live in Switzerland. And obviously, Italy was pretty hard hit and was one of the first places in Europe to be uh, engulfed by coronavirus. So I was starting to get some messaging at the end of January. And then that signal was really amplifying throughout uh, February, especially in Milan. And it was almost like, you know, you, you have your sights on the horizon and you see this great big swell building. So it was... Um, to tell you the truth, it was it was daunting to sort of hear what was happening and then at the same time live in the calm that we had here. And obviously then, you know, the the noise amplified in the first weeks of March and by March 13th, that was it. And since then, you know, we've all been uh, living through the greatest disruption in probably 100 years um, and trying to uh, adjust to it. I think I continue to to try to get a lot of feedback from these different sources. I mean, I'm I'm always reading multiple news sources, both domestically and abroad, trying to see what sort of the the narrative that's playing out. And in terms of you know checking in with my parents and my sister, seeing what is happening there. You know, mm. uh, Italy seemed to pull back fairly quickly just because they were so impacted. However, they let their guard down in the summer and now they are sort of in this, uh, you know, in this period where they're, they're going between these color coded uh, systems where red is full on lockdown and orange is partial regional lockdown. And then yellow is that you can move between, but they kind of keep, you know, moving between those. And then Switzerland is a little bit of a different story that mirrors more the U.S. Switzerland has 26 cantons, which are like the, the states here in the U.S. And, and they've been having a hard time coordinating, uh, not just in terms of obviously the health precautions and what was going to stay open and, and closed and, and uh, you know, the, the essential workers, but also now with the vaccine rollout, they've tried it. They're, they just, they're coming up short on access to vaccines. They didn't put in, uh, you know, enough orders. They don't know how to deploy them effectively and efficiently. So, you know, um, nobody's, it seems like at least the, the folks that I'm talking to, nobody necessarily has it figured out. There is still a lot of fog out there when it comes to, you know, dealing with obviously the next couple of phases of this pandemic. Yeah. No, do you, do you get a sense that they haven't figured out better than we do? Or are they struggling just about equally to us? No, no, I, I, I don't get that sense at all. I mean, you know, early on, we heard all sorts of reports that Sweden wasn't even doing any kind of, uh, you know, uh, lockdowns. And, and it seemed that they had it figured out. And, um, you know, that seemed to, to uh, not work in their favor because now their numbers are a lot higher. And then obviously, you know, this is not a steady state. It's not that we just have a virus that uh, continues to just, you know, on its on its track. I mean, this thing is a biological entity that wants to survive and it will adapt and improvise. And that's why we have this new variant that was initially uh, found in 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 the UK and is now spreading fairly quickly and and it's seems- now there's a third variant or maybe even a fourth variant that they're picking sure. up so it is it is multiplying I do have a solution how do we get everybody uh, vaccinated uh, uh, immediately no one's asked me for for my advice on this but oh, I'm going to share you? it with you put a nurse on every every Amazon truck <laughs> and everybody will get vaccinated yeah. 
Yeah. You know, it's and if you're an a, and if you're an Amazon Prime member, you'll get vaccinated <laughs> one day faster. Right. 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 But it's interesting, Arnie, that that you're mentioning that sort of the mobilization of the private sector, and we've had that partially. But you know, when I think about some of the initiatives during World War II, where you know you had Ford being asked to shift their production uh, towards obviously you know um, weaponry and and air crafts and so on and so forth. I don't understand fully why uh, there isn't more of a mobilization of so many corporate slash private resources towards the manufacture and the deployment of the vaccine. Uh, that's that's still a little bit of a question mark. And, and maybe- well, I think the current administration, you know, the, 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 the Trump administration felt the military could handle it. You know, they put together this thing, Operation Warp Speed, and put the military in charge of it. And, you know, frankly, even I initially thought, you know, that's not a bad idea. The military has, uh, you know, uh, uh, the ability to uh, uh, do logistical work. They have National Guard in every town and city. It should be, uh, you know, they had several months to work through a plan. You know, I had some confidence they were able to do it, but but obviously it was trickier because of, uh, you know, the way the vaccine needed to be refrigerated, you know, 70 below zero and how many facilities in each city could do that. And, you know, once it's unrefrigerated, you only have 24 hours to use it. It was a lot more complicated than going in and building a bridge over a river, which is the kind of logistics the military is more used to and more accomplished at. So um, probably in hindsight, at this point, they probably should have mobilized the private sector. I was half joking about the Amazon delivery, but think about FedEx, Amazon, UPS, they're in everybody's home mm-hmm. within a day of ordering something. Exactly. You know, and I know they can't yep. uh, they can't be trained to give an injection, but there's plenty of nurses and health professionals. You could have spent two months organizing something along those lines if the private sector was going to collaborate. But anyway, I mean, that's it, it's a problem that the world is trying to cope with and adjust. Maybe let me, let me take this one level further. There are changes that have happened as a result of covid. The vaccine is taking a while to distribute. Most people say there won't be any sense of normalcy till the end of 2021. That's, you know, 11, 12 months away. You know, what does that really mean? I mean, for example, in just one simple issue, you know, people are working from home like they've never worked before. All three of us are doing it. Is that going to be something temporary or permanent? Once everybody is vaccinated or once there's a level of confidence that, uh, you know, we've we've gone over the hump on this. Are we going to go back to the way it was or is there, are the things that have happened that'll that'll be permanent changes? What, what do you think, Mike? I think yes. <laughs> and by that, I, uh-huh. I mean that it'll probably be both, right? So, listen, we were already on a tra- trajectory of what's called Industry 4.0 or the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Uh, you know, we had the um, sort of this, these convergence technologies of blockchain, machine learning, automation, robotics. They were on a path forward that has now been accelerated because of COVID. And what we're seeing now, what I just heard yesterday on CNBC, is that companies in Q2 and Q3 put on hold a lot of their technology spending, but now are really ramping up a lot of the implementation of technologies that will sort of set them up for the post-COVID recessionary recovery period, right? So I think during that time, what we're going to see is very much what is now being deemed the K-shaped recession, that we are going to see some uh, jobs that will disappear or uh, be a lot less attractive. And then you're going to see others that are going to sort of, you know, rise based on the technology that is being that is being implemented and, and put out there. And uh, some folks are going to prefer working from home. And some companies are certainly going to embrace that. Why? Because it's a line item that they don't have to deal with, right? I mean, commercial real estate and the leases and all that stuff and the commutes, I mean, those were all sort of burdens uh, to both employees and employers. And now they're finding, oh, we can do without that. And Mm. let's get 
a lot of our workers a lot more flexibility. Now, of course, that brings up all sorts of other issues. For instance, if we allow workers to live from, you know, anywhere and do their work, how do we make sure that, you know, get the most productivity out of them? Or and, and also, are we going to maybe, you know, give them a salary haircut because now we don't necessarily have to give them all the, the office equipment. So, you know, maybe a 20 percent haircut because it's not as expensive to live in Silicon Valley or, or the Bay Area as it is in for instance, Missoula, Montana. So, you know, it, it's almost like a Pandora's box that opens up a whole new set of issues, right? So I, I think that, you know, some companies and some sectors are going to be much more sort of uh, ready to embrace that and make sense out of it. And then others are going to say, actually, no, there's still a very important component to having people you know, workers congregate, work together. There's something that gets missed when you're, you can't sort of, uh, you know, meet around the water cooler and come up with ideation or there are other sectors, other, uh, industries where you still need a high touch kind of environment. For instance, retail. Right. No, I was going to say, like, practically speaking, running a business here in town, working with people, it's far more productive being in the office. At the, and they, I think people crave that, to your point, that socialization and that camaraderie and that sense of being able to share, you know, war stories, et cetera. At the same time, uh, we have businesses who we deal with who are trying to adapt, right, to this new world. And, you know, like the in the hospitality sector, in the service sector, they're meeting, real, you know, there's brick walls everywhere. Mm-hmm. So uh, well, we can learn a lot. Scott, you, I, Mike are all big, you know, music lovers and concert goers. We can all talk about the great experiences we remember, the five greatest concerts we were ever at. No matter how you do it digitally, it's not the same as being in the audience close to the live performance, watching them sweat in person or whatever. And and I don't think you know, I don't think that that's going to change. I don't think that as I don't think it's going to be replace live performances. The other thing is, in you, you know, in, in our business, the radio business, customers want to interact with the the industry they want to interact with their sales reps they want to interact with people right. that are marketing and promoting them there's things you can do online but there are there are things that require in-person high touch engagement and, and that has to come back but i think in some other areas you know accounting i've talked to more people in the last month or so who now have virtual accountants virtual assistants yeah, you know, virtual uh, support staff that never had it before, and are finding that it works well for them in, in that in, in that environment at that level. Let me ask Mike this: You're a college professor. Universities and public school have been really, you know, under under attack as a result of this, trying to figure out what to do. You have kids in public school and, you know, and, and your daughter was going to go off to, uh, you know, college. Scott, you have uh, uh, two ki- two children in college and one who's working professionally. What's happened, you know, to that experience at this point? What, what does it look like now? And is it going to go back to the way it was? Yeah. Arnie, that's a, a, a multifaceted question, and it's one of those that didn't necessarily – uh, play out just over the last year. It's something that's been happening in higher education for decades. And that is that a lot of times for a lot of students and in some, in many cases, their parents too, the calculus just didn't seem right. That is, you know, what you were paying for and what you were getting, um, it just didn't add up. So we've seen this coming disruption in higher education for quite a while. And again, with COVID, it just became an accelerant. And now what you're seeing is, um, you know, institutions, higher ed institutions, universities and colleges, those that are quickly having to make adjustments to that new environment that they've sort of been, you know, digging their 
feet in, or the, the, the digging their feet into the ground. And so they, they've been resistant to doing any kind of online education. Why? Because it's all predicated on the physical infrastructure, getting students on campus and going through that four year experience. And that's just not what we're seeing anymore. Right. So no, who said that it takes four years for somebody to get an education? We're seeing that because of technology, because of online uh, learning, because of podcasts, because of adaptive learning um, technologies out there, people are finding that they can actually get trained up and reskilled and upskilled fairly quickly. And it's really become more of here's what you need to know to go and get a job. And then over the course of your many careers, and you know, today's generation is going to have four to five of them, uh, they will have to actually get themselves reskilled and upskilled periodically. It's not sort of the, you know, I go to school for four years and then that's mm. it. That's not how education is going to work anymore. Well, but here's here's the thing that that concerns me about that. I understand that for developing your capability in the area of your vocational pursuit. But there are 50 million public school children in the United States and 20 million college students. That's a huge number of people. That's 70 million people whose way of do whose way of learning how to be part of society and how to, you know, grow as a person. I mean, school, public school and college and graduate school or whatever is more than just learning how to work and having skills to work. It's also about life skills. It's all about learning, you know, to work with other people, to integrate with, you know, your community. I mean, most of the things I learned in college didn't happen in the classroom. They happened outside the classroom. And when you have 70... Right. Yes. You have 70 million people where it's going to be different now than it has been in the past. What are you going to lose in this transition? Is there going to be a lost generation? That's a great question. <laughs> well, and, and Artie, I think, you know, it, it really comes down to people figuring out themselves how they want to do it. Let me let me give you an example here. For instance, when you think about a university campus, it is like an industrial sprawl that has a sports franchise, it's got a hotel, it's got restaurants, it's got retail stores, all of this other stuff, right? And students nowadays, they can do all of that, but they don't have to do it on campus. They can get all their goods through Amazon, they can get their food through DoorDash, they don't have to go to the dining hall, you know, they can rent some, uh, places off campus through Airbnb, whatever it is. So when you think about that one-stop shopping experience and that you know students are supposed to go through that and get all of their training and their knowledge and also their interactions there, it just doesn't really make sense. They're getting their interactions in so many other places. Look at my son who's 15 years old. Guess what? He's got his old community on Fortnite and Call of Duty, you know, and when he doesn't do that, then he'll go skiing with his buds and so on and so forth. So it's almost like it's become decentralized, right? And it becomes like an a la carte menu. And I think that we're going to see more and more of that when it comes to education and also how you then sort of socialize, right? It doesn't necessarily have to all happen in one place. Well, that's one aspect of it. Here's the one that I'm most concerned about as I, you know, as you know, I taught for uh, at the University of Montana for almost uh, 17 years. You can, as a byproduct or a consequence of some of these changes and streamlining and focusing and paring it down, you can get to the point where you're uh, in adulthood without having ever taken a history course, an art course, a political science course, you know, an you know, an advanced college English grammar course, a literature course. You can get through that without having any of that. And what happens when you have 50 million people moving through society who are diminished in their comprehensive understanding of the world around them? I've talked to people who don't even know what the Holocaust is who are in high school now because it's not, you know, they're not going to school and they're only focusing on the things they need to move on with the career they think they want at this point in time. Even back in my day, in prehistoric times, I was a pre-med major and I got through college without taking a history course, an English class, an art course. You know, I did that on my own because I was interested in it. I did a little bit of it in high school. But there are plenty of people who can, who can become you know, uh, have a narrow pathway to the future. And there's something to me that's 
that's sad or maybe even tragic about that. And uh, hopefully, as we unfold how we're going to do things in this new uh, compartmentalized world, we have to figure out how to keep providing that kind of experience and understanding and education and instruction and historical context to people as they as they mature. I completely agree with you, Arnie. I, I, I and I don't think we're there yet. This is the transitionary period, right? I mean, what happens is that, you know, one paradigm uh, falls apart and the other one has to emerge. So right now there's a lot of experimentation going on in education across all ages, right? There's a lot of how do we do this? How do we make sure that we are actually assessing the learning, that we're also in, in, infusing the humanities and so on and so forth? But there's no sort of uh, dominant paradigm that has emerged. And I don't think that there will be one for at least 20 years. So we're going to see continued experimentation. Uh, some of it is going to fall flat. Others is going to work. But, you know, it, it is... I, I truly believe that this is a, a whole new volume in our civilization, and it's going to take a little bit of time and a little bit of, you know, working together to figure out what's going to work for, you know, the next hundred or five hundred years. Right, Scott. I was going to say to you in, in the music I, industry. Sure. Let me just in the music industry. Twenty twenty five years ago, you listened to radio, and radio had. They had different channels. You could listen to country. You could listen to rock. You could listen to pop. You could listen to rhythm and blues. And you and you changed around and did it and did all that. Now, there's so many music opportunities because of technology. You end up focusing on what you already know and like. And then the system, you know, le you know learns from you and just keeps feeding you what you already are listening to. And how do you expand your musical appreciation if we're moving in that sort of direction in which it's going to be tailored and customized to what you already are experiencing? It's a great question. I think with this hyper-segmentation and AI and the ability for your source to learn your preferences, it is going to start feeding back to you just kind of your, your you know, what your top favorites are. At the same time, the curatorial aspect of social media and with technology allowing you to curate for an audience uh, and to expose an audience to curatorial programming um, is, is the thing that's going to help people cross over and experience new things. I mean, if you talk to Mike's kids or you talk to my kids, they like a smattering of all of the above. Right. They'll, they might say they like electronic music and they're familiar with that and different kind of mixes. But at the same time, that music introduces classical music to them, classic rock, classic hip hop, classic pop music. So it's kind of it's a it's just the paradigm has changed. Yeah. It really well, has. Let's, I'm, we, I'm just trying already, to already we, we sure. But we all remember, you know, buying a tape or uh, an album for that one song and then the rest was trash, right? And you're like, oh man, I can't believe I spent 15 bucks for that one song. And of course now, uh, you know, maybe we don't get the accidental exposure to some of the other songs. At the same time, it be it does become much more sort of efficient, right? You, we and and with streaming, you you know exactly. You can tell this thing, this is what I want. So you're not going to have as much waste and even physical waste. So, you know, again, when we're thinking about the future, there is so much bad about technology that gets highlighted. I'm sure so many folks have watched the social dilemma on Netflix that talks about these algorithms and how, you know how they put the blame. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I do believe that technology will help us with so many of the resource constraints and sustainability issues that we're facing because they will allow us to really make the most out of the resources that we still have by bringing or telling us most efficiently how to use them. I like that part. The part that bothers me is the part where as the education system is changing and you don't have as as much of an eclectic educational experience as a result of uh, technology and COVID and all the other things that are happening, the fourth industrial 
revolution as you so accurately describe it. How does a Billie Eilish music fan learn how to, you know, a 14 or 15 year old Billie Eilish fan who's not going to school anymore in a class, maybe isn't taking music appreciation because it's not required. How does that Billie Eilish fan learn about Beethoven and, uh, you know, Brahms and uh, the classics or even the Beatles for that matter? You know, I'm concerned that this rush to give you, feed you what you already know and like and educate you in a compartmentalized way is going to change the nature of what human beings understand, know, and appreciate. I just don't, I don't think, you know, the same, the same process of like the older brother who had a record collection who introduced you to X that now exists through social media, through gaming, through other kind of front doors, right? Other ways of sharing their likes and, and, and their, their tastes. But the same concept of an influencer, if it's an older brother, if it's a Billie Eilish, if it's a friend who likes Billie Eilish, that's how you're going to get exposed to all these different things. And it's really, it's, it's actually, it's where technology has actually been a huge boon, I think, not necessarily for the recorded music industry, because that industry is is no longer there's no longer a physical product, and now there's no longer a live product. But just in terms of exposing people to uh, to these to these different uh, creators, and then also the cross pollination between music and fashion and art and television and film. That's also you know, a huge kind of way of re re energizing people's tastes and introducing them to new things. And so I'm, 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 I, I hope you're right. And I hope your optimism is correct. I just remember that being a New York city public school student at PS 115, 117 and one, 186. I was forced to read the New York times every day. And I was forced to go to Connecticut to listen to Shakespeare None of my friends ever told me to read the New York Times. None of my friends ever told me about Shakespeare. I was forced to do it. And I, and I learned over time, you know, that that experience was important and it broadened my understanding. Well, let's I'm hoping the influencers, I'm hoping the influencers that you are mentioning have the same impact. Mike, you I want think, to say I something? Think, I was going to ask Mike, Mike, apply this same line of questioning that Arnie's doing around music to wine, because I know you're, well, you're a wine <laughs> and yes, yeah. and on it, right? So, like, there is a physical product that you want people to kind of consume and introduce them to. How do you kind of employ, you know, influencer marketing, or how do you introduce and get people to, if they're big, if they're big white wine fans and Chablis or whatever uh, Chardonnay fans? How do you get them to move over to Pinot yeah. Noir? Yay, I get to talk about wine. <laughs> Do we have an, an extra hour? Um, so, you know, I've been fascinated with this with this uh, field for, for so long in the industry as well. And Scott, you know, the first thing that the listeners have to understand is that we obviously have a three-tier system where because of prohibition, if you are a producer, then you have to go through a distributor who then s- sells it to the retailer. Now, some of those laws are starting to loosen up a little bit, but... In this country, it was really, and it continues to be, the distributors who hold all the power. And they basically, uh, you know, give you the wines that then end up on the shelves, especially at some retailers like Costco or, you know, the Kroger's of the world or the the, the Stop and Shops and, and what have you. So they're the ones that really look, obviously, for volume a lot of times at the expense of some of the more sort of fringy uh, wines that are out there. So that's been a little bit of uh, of the knock on the system that we have is that you don't necessarily get the exposure to the different wines that you can have. And you have to understand in Italy alone, there are over 340 registered varietals, right? So, that you know, when we think of Italy, we think of sort of, you know, a Chianti and a Sangiovese and whatever it is. Well, you kind of go down that list and in the mainstream, mainstream uh, retail outlets, you might find... 30 or 40, well, you still have 300 to go. 
But there's sure. been a movement for some of the smaller retailers now and even smaller distributors who have said, listen, let's let's give the sort of the wine geeks who want to expand their horizons, who are really interested in learning about the wines that are drinking, who who want that transparency of where it comes from and how it's made. Let's give those uh, a little bit more visibility. And that's where I sort of operate. I go into those uh, channels and those retail outlets where you get the, the wine buyer who is basically on a treasure hunt excursion and wants to be surprised. They're not going for their usual. They want to try something new and learn about it. You, you're like, so Mike, let me ask you this. So he caters. So Arnie, just to give you a music, a music yeah. thing, he, he is the, he is catering to the tasty, you know, vintage vinyl over in the village or bleaker bobs. He's not the tower. Yeah. Actor, he's the bleaker bobs. That's who he's bleaker Bob, right. right. I love that. He's rocking Rudy's. He's rocking Rudy's. Uh, yeah. So let <laughs> me ask you this. Company? What's the name of the company? Just, just so we can give it a little more. Oh, the, so the, the, the name of, of my import company is Venture Planet, and the wines are at Missoula Wine Merchant and the Good Food Store. Okay. So you can sample them there. So how has COVID affected what you were trying to do? You're launching a, a, yeah. a business bringing these, these – uh, uh, family-run vintage, uh, I mean, vineyard wines to Montana. Most people experience their new wines either by recommendation of their local wine shop or more more usually go in a restaurant. They go to a restaurant, they order a wine, they like it, they find out what it is, and then they go buy it. Well, mm -hmm. 110,000 restaurants have closed in the United States, and many of the ones in, in Missoula that are still open and you know, treading water to survive are doing takeout and, uh, you know, delivery and the in-restaurant experience has been diminished. How has that altered what you've been doing to uh, to try to bring this new experience into the community? Yeah. And I started this business about a year and a half ago. The first shipment arrived a little over you know, about a year ago. So as I was getting placement in uh, grocery stores and restaurants, you know, one of the last sales I did in person was to a restaurant downtown Missoula. And then a week later, we went into lockdown. And since then, obviously, we've seen the what is called the on-premise consumption, which is restaurants and bars, really dwindle, you know, single digit, if not zero. And that's really tough because it's been about a 50-50 split in terms of you know wine sales in the US on-premise versus off-premise, i.e. at home. And even though people have been drinking more in their homes and have actually been upgrading, you know, the price point and the quality of the wines that they're drinking, it hasn't made up for the, the loss in the on-premise uh, sales and revenue. So it's been a little bit challenging at the same time. Um, you know, the, I, I'm more of a quality over quantity. Uh, importer, meaning that I bring in smaller quantities at higher price points. And, you know, for that, it's actually been okay. I mean, it's been very interesting to see what's been happening in that, you know, people have been migrating into better wines just because they say, well, I'm not going out. I'm not going out to a restaurant or a bar. Right. So I'm as well just, you know, have myself a, a better wine at home. And yeah, they've been experimenting. And I think obviously once we, we get past this and we return to some, you know, modicum of normalcy, uh, it'll be hard to sort of downgrade to uh, the old wines that you had because then you'll have taste for for something that's a little bit better or different. Are these, wines, yeah, sorry, are these wines being just, are you distributing them through directly or through like George's or uh, uh, one of no, the- No, I distribute through, I, I distribute through Shepherd out of Butte. Got it, okay. And have you experienced any disruption in the supply train getting things here from Italy? No, oh, big time. Yeah. I mean, uh, that this last shipment, we were trying to get it obviously before the holidays. It was a month late. Um, so it arrived, I think, Christmas Eve. <laughs> and then there was a mad scramble to, you know, get the product back on the shelves. Um, and that's just been a, a worldwide phenomenon. There's a, a supply chain logjam. It's super interesting what happened is that you know, when we first went into lockdown, obviously there was a complete demand shock, i.e. everything just 
stopped. It's almost like a car just hitting the brakes and coming to a complete standstill. But then what we saw is that there was a shift in terms of what people were buying because they were at home. So we saw demand for uh, you know, laptops and uh, leisure wear and everything else that you need for home home furniture, so on and so forth, really spike. And that bullwhip effect ended up impacting the supply chain. And all of a sudden, you know, you had sort of the shift of ships and and uh, uh, and cargo trucks kind of moving around. And it really just threw everything upside down. And we're still trying to figure out how to actually accommodate uh, some of these these new patterns that are arising that right now are probably short term, but in the long term, we're probably going to see supply chains having to to get refigured as well. Let me pivot a moment from supply chain to blockchain. As of this recording, uh, Bitcoin has pierced thirty five thousand. <laughs> um, the number two. Uh, cryptocurrency ethereum has broken 1200 a coin yeah and so what's going on for our listeners what what does this mean and and uh you know why is there such a rush now to uh to own these uh you know tech not bits of technology actually right. and drive the price up to this uh these levels that were you know a couple of years ago we're talking about you know 100 for uh ethereum and bitcoin was floating around at 5000 now it's 35000 and more yeah. you know what's going on so so for the listeners just to simplify that you know bitcoin is digital gold and Ethereum is digital oil, meaning that Ethereum is used as a fuel or a gas for developers to create applications that are in the blockchain. And then obviously Bitcoin is a, uh, a store value and basically a money uh, a currency, but not a fiat currency. And what's happened is that this time around, that appreciation is very different than it was four or five years ago. Four or five years ago, it was individual speculators who were pumping up the price of Bitcoin and Ethereum. This time around, what's happened is because the Fed is printing money left, right and center for all of these bailouts and CARES Act and so on and so forth, what we're seeing is that there is... Uh, fear that we're going to see uh, inflation, if not hyperinflation. U.S. dollar is already sinking compared to some of the other uh, stronger currencies out there. So then it's like, where do you put your investments, right? And we're seeing that the equity markets were frothy you know, pre-COVID and have become even frothier now. Some of these equities are actually priced out till 2025. You know, you look at bond market yields, they're at an all-time low, almost zero. So it's almost like, well, if you're looking for any kind of appreciation, you're not going to get it. Even real estate is is kind of, you know, depending where you are, it's either really up or really down. We're seeing this in, in Missoula and across Montana where sight unseen things are getting picked off from out-of-staters. So then it's like, well, now I'm looking for something that maybe has a little bit more sort of staying and store value and appreciation power. And Bitcoin is becoming one of those. And it's actually become institutionalized. So there are not just wealthy individuals who have gotten into Bitcoin, but Fidelity or Mass Mutual are actually telling their clients, listen, you might want to load up on Bitcoin, or then they're even mining their own Bitcoin and bringing it in, right, so that they can then sell it. Because Bitcoin, there's only 21 million that are going to be um, um, mined, and I think we're at about 18 or 19 million right now. So it's really become sort of the safety net that 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 folks are are putting their their money into and that's why it's called digital gold obviously we've seen the price of gold go up as well and they're hoping that you know when those inflationary pressures come that at least uh you know they're not going to see an erosion of the value of of their money and for our listeners this is digital mining this is not these are not really coins they're 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 bits or strings or blocks of technology of data that uh, that provides transparency and security for financial transactions. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a, it's amazing where the numbers went with that. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Well, it, and there's hundreds of others 
that are doing that are gold or, you know, there's really only one gold because Bitcoin has established itself as, you know, a limited amount of of these bits of data that will ever be mined, that will ever be asked to be produced. But there's a lot of other ones that are providing um, technology for the for blockchain transactions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the new terminology that's been coined most recently um you know related to uh you know financial data is uh, is uh, taking over the industry what's that uh, findi uh, it's defi which DeFi. stands for yeah, can, yeah, DeFi. yeah it, it stands for decentralized finance and what it actually means is that you know just right now as consumers as consumer bankers uh, or you know doing consumer banking we put our deposits in our savings or our checking and then obviously the bank takes it and then they they lend it out, right? And they get the interest when they lend it out. Well, decentralized finance are basically uh, platforms that allow for decentralization without a middleman where I can lend my money to somebody directly and I get the interest. So that's, there's a lot of activity around that. And ideologically, I think it's, it's super interesting because the whole point of Anything blockchain is about decentralization and not trusting anybody and letting the technology do the trust element through what are called smart contracts. And again, it's a lot of experimentation that is happening. And sure, I mean, there's going to be hits and misses, but, uh, you know, the genie is out of the bottle, if you will. And it'll be interesting to see what happens here in, in the next couple of years around uh, decentralized financial instruments. Absolutely. Let's take a quick break. Our guest is Mike Braun. We will be back after this. It's such a beautiful. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We are back with Mike Braun. Mike, I want you to share with our listeners how they can get a hold of you if they want to ask follow-up questions or they want to, you know, engage you in and getting advice from you. But before you tell us that, can you tell me a little bit about what you are reading now, what you are uh, you know, immersing yourself in what what's preparing you and uh, you know and orienting you for 2021 yeah thanks arnie uh, good question because i i right now i have more questions than i have answers i mean i i think i usually do anyway but uh, i think in this kind of environment where the visibility is is so low i'm just trying to look for anything that can give me a little bit more clarity, if you will. So there's some great books, you know, for, for we were talking about history before and sort of how you, you know, how do you engage with history if you don't necessarily have it as an interest. But I, I, I try to read history through some kind of, of lens and I'm reading a book called Delizia. It's the epic history of Italians and their food. And it's super interesting in that it treats food, but it looks looks at history through the lens of food. And there are just so many amazing stories that that date back, you know, hundreds of years and shows how, you know, at least Italians had to work through some really tough times, including the plague and the cholera and so on and so forth. So that one is really uh, interesting to me. The other one that I'm reading is the ex at the Existentialist Cafe by Sarah Bakewell. So uh, this is, um, you know, more about how the existentialists made sense, especially after, you know, living through World War II. And it's just almost like a philosophical take that, you know, maybe some of the, the listeners can delve into and it can help them sort of find a little bit of insight and stability through these tough times. And then the last one is, is something that, you know, I've been telling my students about, which is a book called Rethinking Humanity. And it's actually free of charge. Uh, on their website, which is RethinkX.com. 
And it's these two guys, James Arbib and Tony Siba. They're sort of these consultants slash historians out of the Bay Area who do an, an incredibly uh, amazing job at sort of a 10,000 foot level looking at civilization and humanity and saying, okay, here are some of the big changes that are coming uh, through on a global level when it comes to sustainability, our transformation in terms of human civilization, uh, you know, sort of the disruptions in technology across sectors. So I'm, I'm getting a lot of great insights from that. And it's just, you know, making me think about some of the, these questions that I have. And how do people get a hold of you? Well, I am at the university, so I, I remain at the College of Business. I'm also the director of uh, corporate training programs at the university. So we work with a lot of companies for corporate training and, and workforce development. And then obviously I have my website, VenturePlanet.com, and you can see the lineup of, of wines. And then there's also contact uh, information on there. Mike, there's always I, I always enjoy our conversations, and you are a man of many talents. Well, Arnie, I'm in good company with you and Scott, so I thank you for, for having us. And, and I can't wait for the day when we can actually, the three of us, get together physically and crack open a couple of the wines. Yep, exactly. We're Wine and golf. <laughs> Wine and golf. Great to speak to you again, Mike. Wine and golf. Again, Arnie. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Okay, great. Take care. All right. See you next week, Arnie. Bye-bye. Take care, Scott. Mike. Thank you for listening to What Do You Know? I can't wait for the next show, Scott. I'm excited too, Arnie. If you'd like to suggest a guest, send me an email at scottrichman at townsquaremedia.com. We'll see you next week. And thanks for listening to News Talk KGVO. ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done